Welcome back to Sounding It Out, a new podcast series brought to you by Signia UK and Ireland. I'm Julia Van Hastien, the Head of Audiology at Signia. This is the second of a three-part mini-series about hearing aid fitting standards. If you missed part one, you can go back and download it for free from your podcast provider. Let's welcome back audiology expert, Dr. Gus Mueller. Thanks once again for your time. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Your life's been going okay since our last one. Absolutely, yes. Oh, good, good. <laughs> and I'm delighted to say that we're also being watched by a live audience. So welcome to you all. And we'd love to hear if you've got any questions. So Dr. Mueller, just before I ask our first question, I'm just going to explain to the audience that the hearing aid fitting standards you've helped put together in the States last year is divided into 15 standards. The first half focuses on documentation and communicating with your patient, as well as some pre-fitting standards. Today, for this episode, we will concentrate on three pre-fitting assessments, which should make, actually, for quite interesting discussion. So we'll be looking at pre-fitting self-assessments, UCLs or ULLs, and also speech and noise testing. So Dr. Mueller, let's start with reasons to use pre-fitting self-assessment scales. And with this, I mean any type of questionnaire completed by the patient prior to the hearing aid fitting. Can you please list a few areas where self-assessment pre-fitting tests may be useful for the overall hearing aid fitting process? Oh, wow. There's a lot of them. I guess just to define what we're talking about here, this would be a self-assessment scale that the person would complete a lot of times. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of times. Some of the times they're actually mailed to the patient in advance. Other times they're completed in the waiting room. Most of them can be done on an iPad today. So it's a simple uh, scale. The usefulness is really twofold. The first is there's normative data. So you know how your patient compares to other patients with similar types of hearing loss. A second reason that they're useful is if you have a pre-fitting measure, this then down the road gives you a very easy way to determine if the hearing aid fitting uh, has been successful because most of these scales, they can be administered before the hearing aid fitting and again after the fitting and you can determine benefit. The third reason of doing these scales is that just think of it as a very good case history that we all probably have a history form, but sometimes we get a little lazy in going through all the questions. These scales certainly give you a good background of of what the patient's doing and they actually can predict in some cases who might be beneficial, who, who might benefit with hearing aids. A good example is a scale that I think is actually used here, which is the HHIE. It was developed in the U.S., but it's pretty popular around the world, a very easy test to do. There are data that show that the HHIE is as good or better at predicting who will better benefit from hearing aids than the audiogram simply because it tells you if the patient is buying into having a hearing loss, which of course is critical for it to be successful. So this is information that one easily can gather before the actual fitting and makes your life much easier when you're then going down the road of selecting hearing aids. Uh, You've actually answered my next question. I was going to say, what's your thoughts on using a validated uh, self-assessment questionnaire versus a good set of open-ended questions? But I think what I've heard from your answer is it's about having that normative data for you to compare your patient with. And it's also about being able to show improvement. Sure. So from where we are today. Yeah. And and the one thing I, I could add relative to that is that you wouldn't want to use 
two scales that, that measure the same thing. So you would want to pick your scales carefully. This is then when you ask, what scales would you pick? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Uh, because that's, that's what right. I want to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's what I'd pick. I think you need the HHI is great because it tells you the emotional and, and social feelings of the person about their hearing loss. I would pick something like the AFAB, the abbreviated performance of hearing aid benefit, because it tells you how well the person is actually doing out in the real world for listening and quiet, listening and reverberation, listening and background noise and aversiveness to loud sounds as a second scale. And then I would pick three. Three is enough, I think. The third scale would be, of course, the famous cozy client-oriented scale of... Uh, improvement. Improvement. Thank you. Thank you. Developed by Harvey Dillon. I remember Harvey Dillon got an award in one of the journals in the U.S. It was written up that the main reason he was getting this award was for development of the cozy, which is a blank piece of paper. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty, wow, that's a cool way to get an award. Harvey obviously has done tons and tons of important research, but including the COSI. The COSI is good because it's like a contract that you develop with the patient and it's very personal. So the problem with some self-assessment scales is it asks questions that have nothing to do with that person where the COSI is designed for that person. It's a contract that you develop with that person, and the agreement is, okay, Bob, these are the four areas where you're having trouble. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to help you in all four of those areas, and we're going to meet in a couple weeks and make sure that I'm doing my job. Mm. And so to me, that's just critical information to have before you ever get into fitting the hearing aids. Mm. And hand in hand with that information or building that picture up with your patient goes, that critical thing about building rapport with your patients and this is where you really form that relationship with them and the trust because you listen to what's important to them and of course cozy bar two then moves on to measuring where you were at the start of your journey to where you end up so we've got that validated piece to the cozy two another tip that i used to use when when i was in private practice is after the person filled out their cozy i would actually have them rate their expectations And that gave you a good idea of where you were going with this fitting. And uh, hopefully you could meet those expectations. Perfect. So the next focus for our episode is about a particular pre-assessment that isn't actually performed routinely. And that is frequency-specific UCLs or ULLs, uncomfortable loudness levels. So my first question about this is, what do you think are the reasons for audiologists not performing ULLs? Do you think it is fear of causing discomfort? Do you think they take it, it takes too long? Or is it perhaps this loudness variability that we see amongst individuals? So what's maybe too loud to you may not be too loud to the next person. What do you think it is? Well, for starters, what you just said at the end is actually the very reason why we should be doing it. If you go back and look at the largest study ever done on LDLs, excuse me, that's the term that I'm used to using. It's all the same, ULLs, UCLs, LDLs. But the largest was uh, Ruth Bentler, which was 508 years. And on her data, you can look and say somebody who has a 50 dB hearing loss, which is very common at 2K, we'll say, uh, very common when you're fitting hearing aids. Their LDLs varied in her study from around 80 to 120. Okay, so tell me you're going to predict from the audiogram, you're going to have trouble. In fact, she went back and looked at her data to see what was the problem if you predicted, and she did then a mean and a regression analysis and a median and all that. The the answer was that you would get it within 5 dB 30% of the time. 
meaning you would be wrong 70% of the time. Wow. To me, that's reason enough right there that I want to have those measurements. Part two of the answer to your question is I, unfortunately, I believe that people fitting hearing aids think that the manufacturer will do the job for them and set the MPO correctly. Mm. Uh, that is also, you said, why don't some people do it? I think they have a unwarranted belief that a manufacturer magically will know what the loudness discomfort level is if that patient sitting there who any given day has a range of 40 dB. Mm, that's crazy, isn't it? That variation. Now, so moving on from that, the next question is then what happens if we don't get it right? What happens in terms of the MPA? What's the implications there for? Well, you know, the thing we often talk about is make sure that loud sounds are not too loud. But there's also a downside of not making loud sounds loud enough, which is interesting in recent years has become more of a problem than making it too loud. Because if we have wide dynamic range compression on all hearing aids with a relatively low knee point, uh, compression ratios of two, two to one or something like that, and hearing aids tend to be underfit gain-wise. Well, what that'll also do then is underfit the output. And so you're putting a ceiling. Take a person who has an LDL of uh, 110. It's very probable that the maximum output will be 80, 85. You're cheating that person out of 20 dB of fun. Mm. Loud music is fun at certain times of the day, and we like to hear it. Uh, <laughs> but they're not going to hear it because there's a ceiling there. Mm. It's never going to get there. So that's that's the one side of it. The other side, of course, is that if a person has a very low LDL, you could be exceeding it. And how are they going to fix that? They can't go in and change their AGCO knee points. Mm. The only way they can fix it is turn down gain. Mm. And then they come back to you and say the hearing aid doesn't work mm. because they had to turn down gain because you made the LDL put too loud. So it can work either way. It's Goldilocks mm. and the porridge, not too hot and not too cold. And you eat the porridge from the little bear. That's my thought. So um, it seems to me that it is one of those tests that it actually only takes what, maybe two, three minutes to do that, but it's really both quite... both ears might be, you need to do two frequencies, mm. and on both ears it might be five minutes. Mm. But uh, critical really to not cheat our patients out of the dynamic range that they need for their hearing loss. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, And you say dynamic range. It's really critical in a sense if if anybody's using the DSL prescriptive method. The DSL calculates target by first calculating the dynamic range and then going back and determining fitting targets. So if one patient's LDL is 90 and another patient's LDL is 110, if you enter those the fitting targets will be different for those two people, even though they have exactly the same hearing loss, Mm. because you want to fill up the dynamic range. So gain for average is in the middle. So if a person has a higher LDL, you'll give them more gain for average because everything is spread out more Mm. from Mm. threshold to LDL. Mm. So it not only changes the maximum output, it changes gain for average, and which is a good thing. That doesn't happen with the NAL, I don't think, but you could sort of do it on your own if you wanted a little bit by if a person has an, a high LDL, you could move gain for average up a little above target. Mm. So that's yet another reason why we need that information mm. and enter it into the software. 
So, uh, again, making that a, a standard, a fitting standard. Well, it is in the standard. Yes, exactly. Which I, I guess is why we're talking about it. Exactly. Yeah, we, we felt that that was just a routine part of doing the fitting is to have, uh, again, all you need is probably two frequencies per ear. Critical to use a loudness chart for them to do the ratings. Mm-hmm and to use the right instructions. The right instructions would be when it's first uncomfortable and you would use an ascending method. So one of the other things you mentioned about a fear of, oh gee, it's gonna be too loud. I mean, it's gonna be too loud when they get out in the real world using the hearing aids too. Mm. So why not fix it in your clinic? And yes, there will be one beeping tone that might be just a hair uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but it isn't like you're going to painfully loud or anything like that. Mm. That's a non-issue, I think. Yeah, exactly. So you do it very gradually and you do it with the right instructions. And therefore, as you say, it's only going to be for a tiny bit in the clinic, but you make the right setup or you do the right setup for the hearing aid as a consequence. Okay, so the next question is about speech recognition and noise. Hmm. Now, it is best practice, it's within the standards, but we still don't see these done routinely. However, there are several reasons why these tests are important, and that's besides the obvious fact that speech recognition and quiet is a very poor predictor of a patient's performance in in noise. Could you please talk our audience through some of the reasons why performing speech recognition and noise is essential, is a standard? Well, I'll start with a very practical thing. And imagine if you were going for some kind of health care, whatever it might be, and you walk into your, your family practice doctor and describe what the problem is. You have a problem with your right elbow, and that practitioner never even once looks at your elbow. That would be pretty weird. In fact, you'd probably get a new practitioner. <laughs> Well, let's take it to hearing aid fitting. The patient walks in and says, hey, doc, my problem is understanding and background noise. And you know what? A lot of people never test them in background noise. That's pretty weird. Mm. And if I'm that patient, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to go to somebody who actually tests me in background noise because that's what my problem is. Mm. I don't have a problem hearing tones. Mm. In fact, there's no tones in my house anywhere. Mm. So from a very practical standpoint, it gives you immediately a tie-in with the patient. They walk in with complaining of a problem. You test to see if they really have that problem. It's also, along those same lines, is a great way to find what is so-called a hidden hearing loss. The fact is they aren't hidden. They're only hidden because we aren't doing the right tests. Mm. Now, maybe some of them are, but there's considerable data to show that many of these people who have normal audiograms do indeed have problems understanding speech and background noise. It's a legitimate complaint. It's not like they're just sort of strange or they're whiny or whatever the case may be. They have a legitimate problem, but we need to do the testing. Now, directly related to the hearing aid fitting itself, where it really is essential is for counseling purposes. I'm not sure it's going to change your fitting tremendously because regardless if their speech recognition and noise is good or if it's bad, we're still going to fit them with directional and noise reduction and all these kind of things. That's sort of the way we do business today. But it gives us a lot of information relative to counseling. You have two patients. One has an SRT, I'll call it SRT 50, where they're getting 50% correct of words and background noise. One of them has a score, you know, of plus two, and the other one has a score of plus 12. They both come back and complain of problems in background noise. I'd be really concerned about the guy with plus two. 
the guy with plus 12, I would expect it. And I probably would have told them that before because the average restaurant or pub is about plus five. Well, if he needs it up at plus 12, he's not going to do well, not with the best directional technology. He's going to need a remote mic. The person who's plus two, I got some work to do. And I'm starting thinking, okay, what went wrong? Did I need to change something in programming? Is he going into a restaurant that's zero dB? It's very useful for counseling. And that's the main reason, I think. Absolutely. And I think going back to your example of plus two versus plus 12, when somebody comes back really struggling with plus two and you think that you've set the hearing aids up as best as you can, that to me would be a trigger to think, what else? Do I need to do some more testing? Do I need to do maybe some more word recognition score, see if there's some roll-off, is there retrocochlea? What else is going on here? Or did they just get their visa card bill, which also brings them back sometimes. But yeah, there, there's a lot of things that go on. Yeah, it changes the whole picture of that particular patient. Mm, absolutely. So my next question is about speech testing and noise. There's a lot of variables when we talk about this. We're talking words versus sentences, the type of competing noise that we use, considering adaptive versus fixed signal to noise ratio, just to name a few. So now for your everyday audiologist, this can get really quite complex. Do you have any specific recommendations for our audience how to keep speech and noise testing as simple as possible? Well, first of all, uh, I realize that these tests are somewhat country and language specific. And so I can really only say what we're doing in the U.S. Other than to say that the hint hearing and noise test has been translated, I think, into 22 different languages. I don't know if that's commonly used here. It is not commonly used in the U.S., I might say, except in research. A test that has gained popularity over the past 20 years is something called the Quicksyn. Partly, who doesn't like the word quick, right, if you're a busy clinician? And it is fairly quick. The other nice thing about it is that the SNRs are pre-recorded, so you don't have to fiddle around and try to set things at plus 5, plus 10, 0, and that. It's all pre-recorded on the file that you would get, which now, on most audiometers, the Quicksyn file comes along. It used to be you had to have the CD and and the CD attachment. But now the quicksend file, I think, is on most computer-based audiometers these days. So relative to what you're saying about fixed versus variable and all that, that is an issue where some people might just take a given test that was designed to be administered in quiet and presented at a fixed SNR. The problem then is it might be too difficult for some people and and too easy. You might get people scoring too well and that's not what you want. You want to differentiate people. So I think an adaptive test works very well. The Quixin is indeed an adaptive test because it tests at six different SNRs, and then you do some averaging when you score it. The Quixin is actually scored not in SRT50, but in SNR loss. The way Mead Killian designed it is, well, because normal hearing people do not score 100% on this. So the test then means how different is this person's score than somebody with normal hearing. So if you had an SNR loss of 5, that means that you need the signal-to-noise ratio 5 dB better to someone with normal hearing to perform the same as then. It's an easy test to give, easy test to score, and I would say it's the most commonly used in the U.S. for clinicians. 
There are certainly other good ones coming out of Oldenburg, Germany, is a test that's gaining steam, is called the matrix test, and it gives you scores. You can pick, do you want it in SRT 50, SRT 80? It's computerized, very easy to use. I think that test will become more popular as it becomes more commercially available. That's the matrix some people just call it the Oldenburg speech test. Or yes, I've used heard to be that. called Elsa, Elsa, uh, Oldenburg yeah. Sats or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but because now it's being used in, I think, 12 different countries, I think it's called the matrix test. So that would be another one to look into. Mm. So you mentioned about the different languages there too. Something worth mentioning is that we need to be mindful of accents too. So sometimes we get patients that come into the clinic and one of the first right. things they say is I struggle in background noise, I yep. struggle with accents. And I know that some of these tests do have quite heavy accent. The Quixen, for example, has quite a strong American accent, but it's been yeah. standardized for use in the UK. So going back to the basics, sure. isn't it? Counsel your patients about what to expect. Yeah, and I don't follow that literature a lot, but I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to norm the Quixen on uh, different types of English. You're right. It could be that scores, SNR loss of four uh, here might not be... Uh, Mm. might not be as bad as an SNR loss of four in the U.S. I, I don't know. I haven't really looked at that. But that's that's always a concern. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's just about that, that point that you made about standardization. As sure. long as we know that it's been standardized for our population, which it has yeah. been. It's a very easy, quick, as you said, quick yeah. to use test. So my next question is, you talked about a few there. You talked about the Quixen. You talked about the Hint, uh, the Oldenburg. Have we got any evidence on how closely the results of all of these different speech and noise tests correlate? So, meaning, can we be confident in the accuracy with whichever tests we use? Do they correlate at all? Well, they do turn out fairly similar, and there has been some limited studies. I recall Rich Wilson from the U.S., he has a test that he developed called the Words and Noise, the WIN. He compared the hint to the quicksand, to the win, all, same people took all three tests. And as you would guess, if you do poorly in one, you'll do poorly in the other. They differed, I think, on when you looked at means, they differed by about 3 dB. You would use that when you interpret, you know, so that that's really not an issue. You wouldn't use the same, they each have their own norms. I, I think the it's a general idea is, is this person close to normal or are they quite a ways from normal. And any of these tests, I think, will will give you that answer. It's just the act of doing them was where the problem lies. Great. That's really good to hear. So thank you very much, Dr. Mueller, for another very insightful discussion on hearing aid fitting standards. Today, we talked about a few pre-assessments. And we often think we follow the golden rules, but sometimes we don't. So it was really good to remind ourselves of some of the reasons why hearing aid fitting standards should exist. We'd love to start a conversation on this. So if you have any comments to share, get in touch via the links on the episode page. Please join us for our third episode about hearing aid fitting standards. And in the meantime, remember, you can find really useful links on the episode page. If you found these episodes useful, we'd love it if you could share it with your friends and colleagues so as many people as possible benefit from Dr. Mueller's expertise. Mm-hmm.